Sunak's anti-worker laws have an Australian flavour, Republican Supreme Court to strip right to strike, Brazil's far right stormed their capital. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison and it is my very great pleasure to be here once again in Her Baby Sheep Ears with the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Insect Conspiracy Cults, my wife, the mother of Germanicus. Our extremely annoying dog. The great, the glorious Van Batum. How are you, Van? Well, apart from the fact that this dog is trying to gouge chunks of flesh from my leg, I'm good, Ben. I do have my baby sheep ears on because I have been writing, as you know. This is true. This is true. And look, you know, it's a funny time of year. We were talking with a friend yesterday about how little news there is uh, around the place, but actually there's quite a bit going on just beneath the surface. I think sometimes we mistake... Uh, journalists being on holiday for there being no news. Yeah, I mean, there's been a rather a lot going on in the world. I mean, and not least in Australia, where, you know, there's events all the time. But if just because we're on holiday and it's cricket season doesn't mean that, oh, terrible, awful, very bad things sleep, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we do keep an eye on what's going on particularly in other English-speaking countries, because we know that there are lots of policies, lots of agendas that get shared between conservatives in Australia and conservatives in the UK, conservatives in America. And today's episode has really, uh, I think, brought together some examples of classic conservative anti-worker policy that's now being rolled out in the UK and possibly in America, based on things that have happened in recent history and is still law in, in Australia. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it's going to be a particularly international-themed episode today, really examining the, the tentacles of the octopus, which is the increasingly hard-right character of modern conservatism. Yeah, absolutely, because what happens in other parts of the world absolutely impacts here in Australia, and what has been policy here in Australia is now impacting around the world. And the first example I want to point to, Van, is British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has introduced some anti-strike legislation which would enforce minimum service levels in what they're calling key public sectors. All right, we're going to need some translation of this, but just to recast your minds your minds back, Rishi Sunak is the new Prime Minister of the UK, positioned as this reasonable alternative to the I was outlasted by a lettuce uh, radical neoliberal Liz Truss. He's still a radical neoliberal, and I feel it's always important to remind people he is a billionaire who bragged about never having had a working-class friend and whose wife, when he was Chancellor, which is Treasurer in the UK, uh, was registered as a non-domiciled citizen for tax reasons. Like his wife, who is from an extremely, one would even say obscenely wealthy family, did not pay tax in the UK. So that's the kind of guy who we're dealing with, the man who, of course, told the homeless man at the soup kitchen who was there for, for, for a meal, um, have you ever considered working in finance? 
Well, it's interesting because I'm not sure that the minimum service levels requirement would apply to finance, which possibly suggests it's not a key sector uh, of the economy. So what is a minimum service level, Ben? Well, this is still being debated, and this is really you know, part of the, part of the crux of, of the debate in the UK because, of course, they've been having strike action in the UK in various industries, uh, rail quite notably, uh, but also in parts of the National Health Service. And in parts of the National Health Service, they have struck deals to have minimum service level uh, agreements. Now, in Australia, we have nurse-patient ratios, which essentially mean there's a minimum number of nurses for a patient in a hospital. They don't have that system in the UK. And what the minimum service level requirement really is supposed to be about is continuing to guarantee the safety of the British public. So they're talking about health, education, fire, ambulance, rail, nuclear, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And they're talking, they're saying that they want to talk to the unions about what the minimum service levels would be. But it's also important to remember these only apply during strike action. So it's not like they're saying, oh, we're going to have nurse-patient ratios and lift the level of care. They're saying that during a strike, some people will have to come to work. And if they don't come to work, they can be fired and the union can be fined. Now, this is a pretty drastic move from a government that is incredibly unpopular in the United Kingdom uh, and whose workforce in all of those sectors has faced significant pay freezes and pay cuts due to inflation. Quite frankly, it's a good reason to join your union because there is a growing movement that says this is unacceptable, that the government is going to punish workers for going on strike. Uh, It's going to force some workers to come to work even when there's a strike on. In fact, a conservative member of parliament has described the legislation as shameful, and and it's really uh, it's really quite telling how much the British public has shifted its view. You know, when it was the rail strike, there was a bit of divide. There was a bit of some people were for it, some people were against it. This legislation seems to be universally getting condemned. Uh, People are going, well, hang on a minute. If we're going to have minimum staffing levels when there's a strike, why don't we just fund these things properly, make sure there's minimum staffing levels at all times and that workers are paid properly and want to be in those industries? People are starting to ask those questions. If you can legislate a minimum during a strike, why can't you legislate a minimum in a good time as well? So it's a really, uh, it's a really important debate that's happening in the UK and they're talking about a nationwide protest on the 1st of February. And, of course, Van, in Australia we have what's called protected and unprotected industrial action, and we have mechanisms in our current laws that also do carve out the ability to cancel strikes and to suspend industrial action where it would harm the economy or harm the welfare of people in Australia. And so the comparison is being made to say, well, these sorts of laws exist in places like Australia. Now, you can understand, or certainly I can see a point that says, 
okay, if somebody's having a heart attack and they need urgent medical attention, we should be able to help them. And there's certainly an argument for that. But we know that the, those laws are not just used for those kinds of really life and death situations. No, they aren't, are they? Would you like to give us a couple of examples, Ben, of where those laws have been used? Well, here in Australia, those sorts of laws have been used quite recently. Uh, let's use the most ridiculous example that I can think of. Monash University took the National Tertiary Education Union to the Fair Work Commission to have not a strike, but just industrial action, which was to not release exam results, to have that suspended on the basis that it would impact on student welfare. The Conservative uh, Commissioner agreed with Monash University and suspended the industrial action. Now, this was not a strike. This was just holding back exam results for a period of time. Those workers were not able to take that action. Of course, the big example comes out of New South Wales, where the Sydney trains strike, the state government went to the commission and said this would have a harmful impact on the welfare of people in New South Wales because people in New South Wales rely on the trains to get around. The commission found in favour of the New South Wales state government and suspended the industrial action, which has dragged on that dispute for months and months and months. Now, in Australia, if the commission cancels industrial action, then the parties have to go to arbitration and the commission makes a ruling on the issues in the dispute. None of those you know, conditions or safety nets or elements have been proposed by Rishi Sunak. Essentially, what Rishi Sunak is saying is the government, the Tory government, which if there was an election held this Saturday would probably only win half a dozen seats, wants to set... Well, that's hopeful. <laughs> ...wants to determine how many workers have to be in certain workplaces whenever there's a strike, and if there's not that many workers, then they'll be fired and the unions themselves will cop a fine. I just want to put this in context for people about about looking at some of the global forces that are behind this kind of activism from the Conservatives at the moment and specifically what has been happening in Britain, and it's relevant to us. We share a language and very similar political system and we are allies with these countries and what they do does affect us. Mm. So what happened in Britain, of course, they had the just incomprehensible vote based on misinformation and lies to uh, vote to separate from the European Union in 2016, the Brexit referendum. And Brexit was what uh, David Cameron, who was the Tory mm. Prime Minister, elected in 2010, he resigned um, because he didn't want to, he knew that Brexit was going to be a complete disaster and famously went up humming, do-do-do-do-do, singing the do-do-do-do song. Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister and, you know, realising a lifelong dream and Brexit and the campaign to get Brexit done is what enables him to uh, totally smash. I've forgotten someone, Theresa May. Sorry, I forgot there's a Prime <laughs> Minister in there. Theresa May, 
It was it, as in the long list of terrible Tory prime mm, ministers, not mm. the worst they had. She beats Jeremy Corbyn, but it's her her dilly dallying around Brexit destabilizes her because she knows, like Cameron mm. knows, that it's going to be ridiculous. And Boris Johnson is willing to roll her and go to an election saying that he's going to get Brexit done. It's oven ready. It's going to be so great and Britain's going to be fantastic. Well, the reality of of Brexit is that they've now lived in the economic consequences of that decision, took a long time to negotiate and Mm. denegotiate various things. Their economy is absolutely wrecked. And while the pandemic was obliging lockdowns and Obviously, there have been other factors. The the Tories were hiding that there has been a massive destabilisation in the British economy. Mm. There are chronic labour shortages in that country. And, of course, in the face of chronic labour shortages, workers are going, well, why aren't we getting paid more and being treated properly given the fact that all of these jobs are falling to us mm. and they need to get done? I mean, and this is horror for traditional conservatives, the idea that working people might band together to demand some kind of share of pie. What makes it more dire is that the Tories' own Brexit policy has absolutely created, because they've lost their biggest trading partner. They were a member of the richest trading bloc in the world, which is the EU, and there were all of these promises that Britain was going to sign these free trade deals with America and with Australia and New Zealand. And it's like Australia, I think we sell them what, Milo or something, some ridiculous (laughs) beef or hats or, and it's like that's not going to rescue your economy, love. So British economists are now going, we warned you this was a total political nonsense that that predicted economic disaster. An economist the other day went, let me put this into perspective, like Britain is the only country that's poorer now than it was before the pandemic. Like yeah. it's not coming out of the pandem- pandemic, it's going backwards. And the situation in Britain is so dire, obviously people will know about heating banks mm. where inflation is completely out of control. All the Tories have done is attempt to cut tax for rich people, which is, by the way, the opposite of what you do in an inflationary situation. Uh, so cost of living is just through the roof. People can't afford to heat themselves. They are, in two years, two-thirds of the way to the collapse in growth. That was the Great Depression in Britain. I mean, that's, that is amazing that they've been able to achieve, is that the right word, to fail so badly at managing their economy and and it's not even we're not even at the end of that right because at the end of uh this year at the start of 2024 they will have to pass a, a bill basically collecting up what remains of their EU legislation that applies to England and the reason I bring that up is that a big component of that is the workplace relations laws. So currently a lot of the laws that are applied in British workplaces come from the European Union. They are based on European Union laws. They will expire when 31st of December 2023 and the 1st of January 2024, there will need to be a whole new basis of these laws. Uh, And people have said that not only is Sunak trying to stop people from taking strikes, he's also preparing a piece of legislation that will strip away things like holiday pay, sick pay, 
maternity leave, equal pay, equal equal pay provisions, um, strip away the right to part time work, strip away the right to convert from contract to ongoing employment. Some of these things are have been fought for for generations in the United Kingdom, and quite frankly, it's in a really bad state. Part of it is absolutely Brexit. Part of it is the neoliberalism of Sunak and and the Tories that are in power. I love how I just forgot Theresa May. <laughs> Can you imagine being the Prime Minister who people forgot? You know, I read an interesting thing that said she she earned more than £2 million in outside income uh, last year. Uh, this, she's still an MP, still an MP. So she's obviously written a book or something because – the, somebody, the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, which is the peak body for unions in the UK, released this table because, of course, the Tories say, oh, it's greedy workers. It's the greedy workers. They won't, you know, we all have to tighten our belts and they won't tighten their belts and the greedy nurses and the greedy firefighters. Like it's become really so, quite like, divisive. This week was desperately trying not to answer the question about whether he had private health care. Because this is the thing, the NHS, the National Health Service of Britain, which is so important. Like I lived in Britain for 10 years and the NHS is one of those issues. It didn't matter if you were on the left or on the right. And friends of mine, very conservative parents, were proud of the NHS, yeah. that it was this great thing that enabled things to happen and they would want it to be better and this kind of engagement around you know, this incredible social achievement, which is public health care. Well, the Tories have been systemically defunding the NHS for years. Obviously, lots of doctors died during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, there were incredible pressures on staff. The Brexit has meant they're not getting the kind of staff that they used to. They're not getting yeah. um, healthcare workers from other places. Like there are lots of different pressures on the system and it's falling apart. There are these reports coming in about elderly people being admitted to hospital and spending four days waiting to be seen in an emergency and dying there because there are not enough doctors, there's not enough staff, there's not enough money. And Sunak is, of course, intimating that what they really need to do is privatise their health system as if that's going to solve these problems. The other incredible conversation with Sunak this week was around, or I believe it was this week, mm. um, was around what they pay social workers. Mm. So in a situation where cost of living is out of control, you have families who can't feed their children, like it, there are social pressures going on in Britain that are horrendous, yeah. like absolutely horrendous. And, of course, a journalist was like, how do you expect social workers who only get paid £18,000 a year like put that into the context of Theresa May and earning two million dollars. Two million pounds. Sorry, two million pounds. Um, on top of her parliamentary. On top of her parliamentary, yeah, entitlements. So social workers who expect to deal. I mean, I worked amongst yeah. marginalised communities in Britain, and there ain't no poverty like British poverty. Let me tell you. Yeah. And the, the and Sunak was like, well, there are things that are more important to social workers than money, and we know that. And the journalist was like, why can't you just pay them more money? And then he was like, well, we're, we're spending money on making them feel valued. And she was like, but they're only, why don't, don't you think they feel valued if you paid them more? It's the most extraordinary interview because he keeps going, well, you know, sometimes it's just knowing that you're appreciated that's enough. That's like, that's really interesting to hear from a billionaire, Rishi. Well, it, it is quite amazing that they really try and push this idea, right? Like in Australia, it used to be, you know, Oh, we don't pay penalty rates. We have pizza parties. You know, I, I still remember those campaigns from back in the day. Vibe guys. Yeah, and it's really 
it's really designed to disarm and disorientate and divide people. Uh, and, and I've got to say, you know, whether you're in the UK, Australia, America, wherever you are, you need to join your union. If you're in Australia, you go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, because the, the wheel turns and Tory governments will come again and this is the kind of thing they're going to do, you know. And, and as I said before, Van, you know, what Rishi Sunak is doing is partly based on laws that exist here in Australia. Absolutely. You know, yes, he's taking it to another level. Yes, he's taking it further. Yes, he's really exploiting a crisis, uh, a cost of living crisis, an economic crisis, one which, by the way, the Tories created. Oh, yeah, they totally created. You know, they've created this crisis. We're, just gonna, we're, we're great free marketeers, but we're going to destroy all of our trading relationships. I'm like, why does anybody <laughs> listen to these people on the economy? I genuinely don't think a billionaire is any longer in a position to make economic decisions because, frankly, from that point, economic decisions don't affect them. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that Rishi Sunak, who hasn't won a general election, who who polls consistently show would lose a general election. Who couldn't beat Liz Truss in an internal pre-selection for leader. Literally only became leader of the Tory party when there was no one else willing to put their hand up, wants to so fundamentally and radically change the working conditions for tens of millions of British citizens uh, and workers in Britain, uh, both through this anti-strike law but also through the EU uh, remaining laws or whatever they're calling them. I can't remember what they're calling them now. But these are fundamentally going to drive workers backwards. But, you know, Van, the thing is it's not just the UK. No, I do want to say one thing, though, just while before we go to another country because we're about to go travelling. I want to talk about Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer's the leader of the British Labor Party. Yeah. And I, hands on, like, <laughs> absolutely hands on the table, am an absolutely huge fan. And I've been a fan of Keir Starmer when he uh, worked on the legal case in, in the McLeibel trial where McDonald's decided to sue two impoverished London vegan hippies for handing out flyers saying Ronald McDonald was bad. Literally, that's what happened. And he's a human rights lawyer who comes from an extraordinary background. He's from a working-class family. Right? Yeah. He's absolutely the the pride of South London. And one of the unfortunate realities that we live in is that people think that that what people say on Twitter is inherently true. And I see a lot of commentary from Australians about, oh, yeah, Keir Starmer, he's so right wing. He is not. He is playing a very strategic and tactical game in order to become the next Prime Minister of Britain and lead a majority Labor government that gets Britain out of the neoliberal catastrophe that it's in. There's a very good line from Napoleon that you and I quote all the time, which is, never interrupt your enemy when they're making a mistake. And absolutely, I would, you know, I would love to see people with big red flags and T-shirts saying, I heart democratic socialism, marching down like the mall, yeah. like in front of Buckingham Palace. I'd love it. I'd absolutely love it. I'd, I'd you know, to see kind of a mass collectivisation effort of Britain's wealth and all the greedy billionaires like driven onto boats to get lost at sea. 
you know, I, I mean, I do dream of these things yeah. at night time, but it is ridiculous to to participate in this discourse around, oh, well, what is he doing? And it's like, well, he's conspicuously doing what Jeremy Corbyn didn't do and he's not turning himself into a distraction or a target when finally, finally, people are going, oh, my God, the Tories are terrible. Simon Pegg, the great yeah. actor and comedian, did that fantastic video the other day, which obviously because we agree to not swear on this program, thank you, Apple, um, we can't quote directly, but I do suggest you look at it. Like the focus is where it should be on the fact the entire economic catastrophe is the responsibility of the Tory party. And, of course, Labor have an all comprehensive alternative mm. to it. And Keir Starmer has said that uh, if he gets elected uh, as Prime Minister, that he would repeal these anti-strike laws. Yeah, absolutely, he and, would. And he's and he's made that very clear. And he's he said he has said as much. Um, you know, and so I mean, I take your point, Van, and I think it's a good one that you know, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn tried the big manifesto approach, um, and there's a whole. I'm sure there's a whole school of PhDs about why that didn't work. Um, but Keir Starmer is consistently outpolling now four different prime ministers. Uh, he is consistently positioning Labor to take the reins of government and actually repair some of this damage and make life better for working people. And that is fundamentally the name of the game when it comes to electoral politics. Of course, electoral politics is not the only place where workers' rights get impacted. We know they get impacted at the workplace, which is why being a union member is so important. Ben and I think you should join your union, by yeah, the way. We absolutely. Think, we think that's a thing that should happen. But, of course, the courts also play a role, in, particularly in the Anglosphere around workers' rights. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps none more so than in the United States, where, of course, the Supreme Court is this sort of all-powerful institution. And, and Van, in America, we know that workers... Solving the problems of 1770 today. Yeah, exactly right. Oh, America. Oh, my Lord. And, look, in America there are a lot of hurdles for, for workers. The, the first is, of course... Just, Capitalism. I mean, that's a big one. Yeah, and just, just getting unionised, right? Like it's not like here where you can just go and join your union and you're part of the union and... You're a member, and more people in your workplace can join, and that you don't have to have a majority in order for the union to negotiate on your behalf. In America, you've got to get a majority in your workplace. Your workplace can be as small as a cafe, like it can be really, really hard. And at the same time, the boss can run campaigns to try and stop unionization. So there's this whole process that's got to go on before people are even in a union, before you start talking about collective rights or collective action or industrial action or any of those sorts of things. And, and you sent me a, a thing from Twitter, the Texas Ballet Theatre uh, is trying to, the workers there are trying to unionise. Yeah. I can't imagine it's a very big workplace. Oh, there are about 27 dancers. Yeah, so 27 people, right? They're trying to unionise and the bosses have called in a multi-million dollar consultant from a different state to try and stop, yeah, the they're union busters. They've brought they've brought in a union busting law firm. There's a whole industry in the US about this union yeah, busting law yeah. firm. It is absolutely extraordinary, and I just want to remind everybody 
Um, ballet is in particular an extremely dangerous workplace yeah. because injuries are so high and your capacity to maintain an income as a dancer, anything comparable to people in other professions is very limited. And anybody who knows professional dancers knows of the unique um, pressures that are put on their bodies, you know, to, to do what they do. So ballet dancers, like every worker, have a right to organise and they have really specific occupational health and safety and career longevity demands yeah. to make of their employers. My solidarity is with uh, the workers of the Texas Ballet Theatre. and it's But it is manic and disgusting, like the obsession that un- unionisation is some kind of virus that if you don't shut it down could spread everywhere. And it's like, well, what are you afraid of? Well, they're, they're afraid that workers are going to get their fair share of the value that they produce. That's fundamentally what they're afraid of and fundamentally why they put these barriers in place. And look, it's interesting because in some in some respects, America has, uh, you know, a right to strike that is stronger than, say, Australia. Yeah, it, legally. Yeah. Legally, right? Because they have a thing called the National Labor Relations Board, and the National Labor Relations Board is a is a independent body, and essentially, um, basically says that if you if you're a group of workers and you vote to go on strike uh, and you haven't been bullied into it or forced into it, then you have a right to do that. Like you essentially have a right under American law and that right is enforceable by this body to say that you can go on strike. What's happened over time is that the conditions on how that actually plays out have been uh, imposed more and more on workers and limitations now on the National uh, Labor Relations Board are starting to crop up. The Supreme Court, which I mentioned earlier, has heard a case in the past, 50 or 60 years ago, which basically laid out the process for workers going on strike. And it basically said that uh, if you going on strike was going to cause substantial damage or potential loss of life, then it may not be considered protected. It may not be allowable. And if you go on strike anyway, then you may be liable for the damages that that creates. And this came about because of a dispute, series of different disputes, but one in particular with a lead smelter where the workers wanted to go off on strike with boiling lead still in the vats that would have destroyed the machines and possibly killed people, whatever, right? So there was a reason to have this system and a process that had to be followed where you went to the National Labor Relations Board and said, we want to go on strike. It's not going to hurt anybody. Can we go? They say yes. Now, the Supreme Court van, as you and I have discussed before, has been changed significantly since the presidency of Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. And they have been reviewing and going back over old cases and bringing forward new cases to rip up old precedents. And that that precedent... The, the Garmin precedent that established that process that basically said if you're not hurting anybody, you can go on strike and you're protected. You're not liable for the costs. Right? The boss has to wear the costs. That precedent is being challenged by a, a new, uh, a new uh, case from a company called Glacier Northwestern 
versus the Teamsters. What's happened here is cement truck drivers went on strike with the trucks full of wet cement. The bosses had to bring in scabs to unload the wet cement so it didn't harden and wreck the trucks. The bosses did that. The trucks were fine. There was absolutely no problems, um, except there was extra cost. Uh, and the bosses want the money. And so they've taken this all the way to the Supreme Court. So this, what this will do is essentially remove the protections from workers to go on strike. If the Supreme Court does find in favour of the bosses here, it will open up every time there is industrial action, even if it's been voted on by the workforce, even if the National Labor Relations Board says, yes, that should be protected and no, you can't fire those workers because they've gone on strike, they will still be subject to potential court action in state jurisdictions, i.e. being sued as individuals and as the union. Mm. It's a pretty... Yes, I don't like it either, Germ. It's a Germ does not like union busting. Well, it really is union busting. And it and it has a it has a really detrimental effect because we we saw here in Australia when we brought in, we have protected and unprotected industrial action here. And there are conditions that have to be met before you can take protected industrial action in Australia. One of which is it has to be your bargaining period, right? But even within that, we saw carve-outs created for things like the construction industry where fines were being applied to individuals, things like stickers on helmets and flags that were being flown on workplaces. We know the impact that has. People can't afford $15,000, $20,000 fines every time they want to stand up for their own rights. That's why we created unions, so we could have that collective power, we could have that collective capacity. What this Supreme Court decision might do is strip the American worker of that collective power. And I, I want people to be very clear, there was a trending topic on Twitter either yesterday or the day before, um, which was Federalist Society. Federalist Society is this very murky American organisation that proposes lists of judges that it wants appointed um, by Republican legislatures. So in the United States, they the, the sort of higher court judges and the Supreme Court judges are nominated by the, gov- the government. They have to get through a confirmation process, mm. but if you have the majority, they yeah. get through. And, of course, what happened infamously in the last term of Barack Obama, in the last, like 11 months before the election, he tried to put Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court because there was a vacancy and the Mitch McConnell, the Republican, stopped him, used his numbers in the Senate to block it with this argument that, oh, it was an election year, so they couldn't appoint a new judge in an election year, totally breaking with precedent. Of course, under Trump, and this was the real ter- terrible um, impact of the Trump mm. administration, which is why I will never, by the way, forgive anybody who either didn't vote or voted against Hillary Clinton in that mm. election. I just because it's disgusting and women, you know, lost their reproductive rights as a result. There were three vacancies during Trump's presidency and Federalist Society nominees were put up. Infamously, Brett Kavanaugh was not particularly qualified, has a very murky past and was credibly accused of sexual assault. And Amy Coney Barrett, who was um, appointed a couple of days before the election, just an act of total hypocrisy, 
who used to be a member of an extreme right-wing Catholic cult mm. um, and who, of course, is a notorious anti-abortion campaigner and has never uh, been a judge, was also kind of relevant mm. and had almost zero experience. But they have beliefs that are vetted by the Federalist Society and, of course, were comparatively young because an appointment to the Supreme Court in America is an appointment for life. That's right. In Australia, the Supreme Court, uh, we, don't, we have a high court. Now, high court justices have a compulsory retirement age. Our federal court justices have a compulsory retirement age. But in America, it is literally an appointment for life. And uh, the the last two vacancies or three vacancies have all happened because somebody died in office. Well, this is the thing because they don't like giving it up. Not even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was you know the great feminist yeah. liberal justice champion. There were there were activists who were begging her to retire um, while Obama had the numbers to make a new appointment, and she refused to do it. You know, seemingly yeah. thinking she would live forever. Uh, which is unfortunate because that's not really how that yeah. biological reality works. I mean, it would have been works. great if she could. I but... mean, yeah, great RBG, that would be yeah. fantastic, but that's not how these things work. And, of course, she died when Trump was president and he replaced her with an conservative. The issue that we have around the Federalist Society, and this is why this is what's of relevance about particularly anti-union cases that are going before the Supreme Court, is that it's funded by people like Koch Industries, the Koch brothers who are the infamous far-right venture capitalist billionaires who own half of America and fund literally every bad thing you can imagine. And their dream, their vision is to return um, to return American reality to the economic conditions before FDR's New Deal in the 1930s. That's what they're working towards. That's pretty great. Is to undo the legacy of FDR's social democracy. <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing. That's a no minimum wage, uh, no union rights, no health care. No, no government infrastructure. No government infrastructure kind of society. That's what they want. That's that, what. That's like bootleggers. Uh, it's like a bootleggers dream. Yeah, like the people who were responsible for the Great Depression. Yes, that's yeah. the reality that they want to return us to because it doesn't affect them. No, well, they're billionaires. Well, they're billionaires. You know, it's really interesting. There's a line that I was reminded of the other day. That comes from the movie Chinatown, which mm. is that Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway movie, which everyone should see. And there's this brilliant moment in it where um, Jack Nicholson's character, the private investigator, you know, it becomes about corruption and about a, a rich man who's trying to become even richer. And Jack Nicholson says to the character who's played by John Huston, like, you have all the food you can eat. You have so much money. What do you even need more money for? Like, what? What do you not? What? What is there to own that you don't already own? And John Huston's character says, "The future." <laughs> and I have not been able to stop thinking about that line, thinking about the the Coach Brothers and trying to undo the the New Deal, and thinking about Elon Musk and Mars and Jeff Bezos and you know, and Elon Musk in particular, like mm. wanting futuristic cars and battle tanks and all the other nonsense he goes on about. Because that's it. Like you reach a point where what's left by Peter Thiel, who's mm. the absolute right-wing scumbag who has spent so much money making America terrible that he now wants to live in New Zealand because it's much nicer because he hasn't wrecked it yet. I mean, this is, this is what we have to be really conscious of is that there are movements 
of organised capital. Uh, they are spearheaded by these sorts of people, the Teals, the Musks, the, the Bezos. who are right-wing scumbags from America. You know, and they, and they do share these ideas and they do take up these issues. You know, the part of the argument in this US Supreme Court case uh, is about compensating the boss for losses incurred as a result of the action of the workers. That argument was made time and time again over the last, more than the last decade, longer than the last decade, but certainly frequently in the last decade of liberal government here in Australia, which was that it shouldn't, shouldn't be a cost. You know, if workers want to take action, it shouldn't be at the cost of the employer. Now, the reality is that it has to be at the cost of the employer. There has to be an economic penalty. And let's be frank, it's not just the cost of the employer. Workers wear the cost of going on strike as well because they do lose income because they don't get paid for those days when they go on strike. Mm, the and boss does tr- threaten to fire them. Yeah. They it, do get condemned in newspapers by, you know, right-wing commentators. All of, There is a huge social cost of taking action, because, but people take it because it's meaningful and it brings about change. And, it's, and, and it gives working people a chance to influence the future. Absolutely. And it's that collective power that has created the future that we're in now. Like if you think back to... If you think back to the 19th century when unions were in many places illegal, the idea that we would have the, the conditions that we have now in, say, Australia was just, it would be unthinkable in the year 1813. You know, we didn't even have the eight-hour working day at that point. So it's workers coming together that wins that. We won the working the eight-hour working day First in Australia, because workers came together and went, actually, you know, there is a shortage of stonemasons in Melbourne. And why are we having to work 12 hours a day every day? And why did we only get one day off a week? This isn't fair. This isn't right. You know, we, our labor is important. Our labor is valuable. It's valuable to you. It's valuable to us as our time, the time we can spend with our family, with our community, doing the things we want to do. You know, and that collective spirit gave us the eight-hour day, you know, and that spread around the world as as workers around the world went, hang on a minute, we deserve this too. We've got to be mindful that every time we get a win, it's not set in stone. It's not there forever. And these cases, this situation in the UK with Rishi Sunak and his anti-strike laws, this Supreme Court potentially overturning the liability of workers in when it comes to strikes, uh, and and even what we're seeing in Brazil, where a left wing president has been elected, but it sparked a right wing backlash that's essentially stormed their capital. Ben and I were having a conversation this morning about the two types of people you can never get rid of, and they're the people with the money and the time to keep bothering you, and the people who don't care about bothering you. That's and that's yeah. the and that's the billionaire far right they're never gonna as long as they're billionaires and this is why i believe that you should get taxed 99 percent of your wealth the moment you hit billion dollars 99 percent enjoy the rest um the the reason why they're not going to go away is they've got the resources to keep playing this game and they you know have the 
arrogance and the megalomania to keep pushing past the wins that we gain. And though because they want to own the future. And it's why they keep attacking working people's ability, desire, want to collectivize. You know, there was an interesting story just before Christmas about union density in Australia. And union density had gone down a couple of percentage points or something. But the overall number of people who were in the union was the same. And this is at a time where we've had a rampant growth of jobs in the economy. And we've had the largest generation of what was partly the old conscripted workforce, the boomer generation, where you basically had to be a union member in order to work in certain industries, coming out of the workforce. So as as we've had the largest ever generation of union members retiring and a massive growth in the workforce itself, the union movement in Australia has maintained around one and a half million members, larger than any sporting code. Like it's it's a remarkable feat. And yet the media portrayed this as a collapse in the union movement. Oh, yeah, because they always do. It's always about collapse in the union movement. And it creates this unrest. And how do you create change? And how do you actually get the world you want to live in? And Van, you've written about this extensively, right? Like when people don't see hope for change, they don't see democracy as serving their interests. That all they see are vested interests winning again and again and again, and they, their life circumstances going backwards. They do turn to extremist movements. They do turn to misinformation. They do get captured by these movements that will use them, uh, you know, use their class crisis, I think is a term you coined, um, where they've gone from being middle class. Uh, I would love to think that I had coined the term class crisis, but it is, um, I mean, it's just a statement of fact. I mean, this is the thing. So we're going to talk about Brazil, and I just want to foreshadow this by saying I am not an expert on Brazil politics, more than happy to hear any Mm. enhancement um, on on the discussion at this point, although I am a huge fan of Lula. I love Lula. That's another hands on the table. It's, it's almost like there's a pattern. Um, good trade unionist. A good trade unionist and the son of um, illiterate farm workers and just an absolutely extraordinary um, individual. So the issue with class crisis and the the population that is so easily manipulable towards far-right activism, and I've said this on the show again and in my book and everywhere else, is the middle class. And there's a particular tension. When things are very bad for the working class, the middle class gets radicalised and often to the right out of a fear of joining the working class or joining, God help us, the lumpen proletariat, which is your welfare class or the other kind of extremely marginalised social classes. And it's this fear of losing class position that mobilises people towards far-right movements that promise them a place in the sun, essentially. And, of course, this was Trumpism. Um, Let's be very clear, despite Sean Hannity, who's a horrible Fox News bloviating Mm. talking head of evil right-wing person, um, calling Donald Trump a blue-collar billionaire, that's not who elected him, right? Yeah. Who elected him were middle-class people. And there's that study that says the single largest determinant of whether you become a Trump supporter is if you're a member of a homeowners association. So you're looking at an embedded middle 
class behind that particular movement. And it's the same in Brazil. So um, the basis of the the Bolsonaro um, movement, the Bolsonarists Mm. behind uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who's the leader of the far right in Brazil, very much came from that sort of opportunistic middle class after various periods of economic chaos in that country. So the the potted history is Lula, I believe, was first elected as a trade unionist, was elected as the leader of the Workers' Party as mm. president in 2008. He did 11 years in office and was succeeded um, by his party comrade Dilma Rousseff. Mm. And Dilma Rousseff was framed on charges of corruption and uh, replaced, was removed from office and replaced as president by a right-wing guy whose name I think was Tema, who actually described what he had done as a coup and was quite proud of himself. So this long sort of 13-year period of rebuilding Brazil, because Brazil was under mm. military dictatorship until I think 1985 or six, um, they they pursued a right-wing program to tra- to to shift the window of politics in Brazil, and, of course, that came with economic consequences. And when Bolsonaro ran in 2018 um, for president uh, from the far right, not even the sort of centre right, he ran on, he really appealed to people who were participating in illegal logging and mining and said, Mm. you know, there would be amnesties and he was going to support, you know, those entrepreneurs who were destroying the Amazon and therefore threatening life on earth and that there would, you know, that there would be a new deregulatory spirit and also campaigned on a social conservative level of, well, you know, I'm going to reward people who want to be rich and I'm going to affirm family values by being explicitly anti-feminist and also intensely homophobic. Um, And in addition to this sort of worldview, and this is with, and Lula ended up in prison. Lula Mm. was also um, arrested and convicted on trumped-up charges and went to jail, Mm. volunteered himself for arrest, which Mm. is, not common with our friends on the right, of course, um, and and Bolsonaro was in contact with the Trump guys from day one. Mm. So Bolsonaro's son Eduardo was having meetings with Stephen Miller, who was a Trumpist, obviously Stephen Bannon, who gets rather a lot written about him in my book, who was Trump's um, campaign director and was ended up as his advisor mm. early on in the Trump administration. And this is the point Ben and I are trying to make, that they're, they're in cahoots, like, and this isn't a secret conspiracy. These guys are openly meeting mm. with one another. Like, they're not doing it in basements under pizza restaurants. No. They're doing it in Trump Tower. And Matt Canavan, LNP senator from Queensland, has been on Steve Bannon's podcast a number of times. A number of times. These are these are conservatives are mobilised. And highly resourced because they get money from crazy billionaires who yeah. own the future and destroy the new deal. I mean, Stephen Bannon's been funded by the Mercers, who are the billionaire American family for years, and he's a former Goldman Sachs banker with all the money in the world, which is why it's always hilarious to watch him rail against the elites. Yeah. Really, Steve. So, oh, yeah, so Stephen Bannon um, had a relationship with the Salvini campaign in Italy and advised the Bolsonaro family to adopt elements of the Salvini campaign. They shared data, they shared strategies, they shared um, social, me- like social media content. Mm. This was one of the things that I picked up 
uh, when Labor lost the election in Australia in 2019. And there'd been all of that really weird stuff going on online, mm. attacks on Phil Shorten's character that were unfounded, um, and this accusation that Labor were going to have a death tax oh, there was going to be this death tax and there was all this Facebook posting about death tax, death tax, death tax. And something about one of the posts I saw and unfortunately after the election I was like, I'm sure I've seen this before and I realised it was a campaign Bannon had run in Florida, Mm. an anti-death tax campaign or Bannon had had some association with and they didn't even change the numbers. It was the same sort of percentages that they were using in the Australian context. And, of course, this is they see this is in their interest. Yeah. Steve Bannon has been very open about the fact that he's building a global populist movement to overthrow all the people he doesn't like who happen to be representatives of an ideological system known as democracy. Yeah. And, of course, what's happened in Brazil is that Bolsonaro, once in government, um, it ran basically ran the Trump administration. They called him the yeah. Trump of the tropics, yeah. and he ran the Trump administration from Brazil. And but was elected. I mean, it was things like guys who had guitar teaching YouTube channels who would halfway through start talking about how feminists were the problem, and that's why everybody should vote for Bolsonaro. And this really quite sophisticated targeting of communities. And mm. you know, the left didn't see what was coming and what was going on. And Bolsonaro's tactic in office, his political party is a lot more ideological unstable than even Trump's was, Mm. and unstable, like a lot of sort of opportunistic representation, um, was that they got bought off in a secret budget. It was like $23 billion worth of spending that was um, targeted towards various internal people that Bolsonaro had to placate, and, of course, Bolsonaro lost the election for president last year because Lula, who had gotten himself out of jail and had his conviction overturned, who's 77 years old, mm. rebuilt his coalition in quite an extraordinary way. So his vice president, who won with him in October, is the guy he ran against full president in 2006. Right. So it must have been 2006. So, um, so that, it, so he's come in with. And it was a close election anyway because there was voter intimidation and voter suppression Mm. and doing all the – Bolsonaro does all the things that Trump does. And, of course, months before the election, Bolsonaro started on the, oh, well, you know. If I don't win, it must be rigged. Yeah, if I don't win, it's definitely rigged. I mean, I'm going to win, right, like because everybody knows I'm going to win because I'm so great. At the same time, um, Bolsonaro was a COVID denialist Mm. and – clamp down against things like mask mandates and, you know, underplayed the severity of the virus. He's now had COVID, I believe, four times and been hospitalised repeatedly mm. uh, for these infections. And there was a great meme on the internet yesterday, which was find someone who looks at you the way Maya Bolsonaro looks at a hospital. Um, and, yeah, and, the, and meanwhile, thousands and thousands and thousands of Brazilians were dying yeah. of coronavirus because Bolsonaro was just refusing to take it seriously. And there were, of course, numerous other problems as well Mm. because these guys who get elected, they're really good at getting power and then they don't really know what to do with it and then lots of people die. So Lula rebuilt his coalition, ran for president. The Bolsonaro party still has the majority in the parliament, but like I said, it's not quite as ideologically cohesive as you'd be led to believe. And... uh, Lula was inaugurated as president on the 1st of January, amazing symbolism. 
um, Bolsonaro became the first president in the history of Brazil to not hand over the governing sash. They have a sash that's yeah. a symbolic thing to, and because he was still election denying and refused to concede. He'd, he'd fled to Florida. And by this stage he had fled to Florida. And guess who lives in Florida? You'll never guess. He's going to live with Donald Trump. Well, he's living with one of them. I don't think he's living oh. with Trump. I think they're hanging out. I mean, there oh. are lots of photos of them together. But... Um, but he's been shooting lots of videos to make himself look normal, like him going to a supermarket, which is one of the funniest things you've ever seen because it's quite clear that man has never been to a supermarket in his life, doesn't really know what to do. Can you touch the food? Oh. Anyway, it's quite interesting going to KFC and that just that it'll put you off that particular food for life. Anyway, he's already in hospital. Um, but what happened on the weekend, and this is after the great inauguration, and I want to mention that Lula had all these representatives of the communities he represents like he had laborers and indigenous people women and lgbtqi brazilians and they all walked up with him it was yeah. quite symbolic you know that performance of we are all brazil we are yeah. all the presidency like he's great Lula, yeah. he gets it and um and everything every because the bolsonaro the bolsonaristas had been yeah, 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 it's all rig, rah, rah, rah. Well, it all kicked off on the weekend. So they left the apparently security for the inauguration was extremely tight, but on the weekend thousands of them turned up, about 4,000 of them, according to the report that I read, a lot of whom had been bussed in. Somebody had paid for mm. buses. And miraculously, like the head of security, who's a Bolsonaro supporter in Brasilia, which is the capital, he was on holiday and just didn't approve a bunch of stuff. It's just pretty oh. crazy, this guy called Anderson Therese. And the Bolsonaristas attacked the judicial building, the presidential palace, and the Congress. So they hit all three branches of government and trashed them, like absolutely trashed. And there were police who were letting them in and smiling, taking look very January 6-y in yeah. some respects. And, of course, the whole thing, I mean, and this happened on, what, January 8th, mm. conspicuous timing, but it was yeah. interesting because it was the same playbook as January 6th. Yeah, and, and am I right in saying that people like Steve Bannon were on social media encouraging people yes. to do this? Yes, that just was, like they were with, uh, what am I thinking? Oh, January 6th. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. That these, these same, these same uh, far-right actors, these same personalities, the, the, the people that Elon Musk has unbanned effectively from the public square. Ali Alexander, who ran the Stop the Steal campaign that was behind January 6th and the riots, yeah. he is back on Twitter now. Yeah. Like all of these fascists are on Twitter. And um, and this was what was what has been said in the wake of what happened on the weekend was that a lot of the misinformation and encouraging people to attend these protests came from Twitter. Because all of these accounts have been unbanned. Oh, by the way, Elon Musk also um, has been letting um, right wing, but also convicted pedophiles uh, reopen their Twitter accounts. Um, has been one of the lovely uh, learnings of this week. Yes, uh, great, Elon. Um, but this is the thing. Like, and uh, to his credit, what is amazing about what happened? So since um, Bolsonaro lost the election. And conservatives do traditionally enjoy support from the military because military yeah. is a pretty conservative institution. A lot of them have been camping outside, like military grounds, and demanding that they take action to overcome these corrupt mm. elections and the rest of it. And they're all pumped up with the propaganda, like the disinformation, conspiracy theories, because these right wing guys 
don't really have a policy platform beyond I'll be in charge, pay off my friends, destroy all my enemies and have a good time. Yeah. You know, oh, there's a hospital that can't wait to have me in it. Um, and and this is the thing, like they've been trying to sort of mobilise the armed forces to back them in. Well, the hilarious thing that happened on the weekend while these 4,000 people were riding was the army turned up um, and they greeted them cheering and then the army arrested them all, <laughs> which is just... It's Lula. Like, he's back. Like, Lula's in charge. And Lula wasted no time, like, literally called everyone and went, right, we're having a job. We are going to walk through the judicial building and we're going to look at the damage and we're going to make sure every single person is in this photo, everyone from the army, everybody from the Congress, everybody from the judiciary, we are all on one page and we are defending Brazilian democracy together and we are walking through this and very, very automatically on side. Anderson Torres has lost his job. The guy who employed him has lost his job and it's just moving very, very quickly and Lula has been unambiguous saying if there's anybody in the security services who's not committed to democracy, that's like well, this is the thing, we're isn't not it? screwing around. Because anymore. these people are not committed to democracy. And, and you know, we talked about Brazil. I've, I've seen some footage on, on social media in the last week of people in Canberra here in Australia doing exactly the same thing you've just described, going to uh, Australia, an Australian military base, trying to hand them a letter asking them to assist in the overthrow of the democratically elected Commonwealth Government of Australia. Now, this this is on social media. They film themselves doing this. The, the poor um, Defence Force personnel are just like, we're not taking that later and you can't come on the base, go away. Uh, they they basically camp outside the base. Like These, these people are influential and in, having impact Around the world, and thankfully in Australia, it's their strategy is coming from the same place. That's right, and thankfully in Australia, it's only a small handful of people. But we also know how violent it can be, and the repercussions of that can be, you know, there can be deaths, and and it has to, it has to come to an end. Uh, and and you know, Van, part of me goes, the way it comes to an end is is through leaders like Lula. It's through people coming together and forming communities like unions, saying actually these are the things we believe. We believe in democracy. We believe in in our own self-determination. We believe in electing representatives who represent us and our experience, not billionaires and their interests. Like it is a very, um, I think it's a very crucial point in, in human history where democracy hasn't been around that long. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. And I always think when people are like, oh, uh, you know, is, is this going to work out? It's like it took the French 100 years to stabilise their revolution, like 100 years yeah. after 1789 to sort out their system of government. And realistically, like we are still at the beginning of the democratic experiment. Yeah. And the experiment in self-government. I mean, one of the reasons why America has so many problems, and this is my joke about solving the problems of 1770 today, is that, they haven't the, – the interesting thing about being from New Zealand or Ireland or Canada or any other kind of post-colonial um, British country, they mm. keep that sort of longer, 
relationship with Britain was that there were there were fights and there were separations and there were negotiations. Like obviously Ireland's slightly different, well, obviously mm. a very different story. But New Zealand, Canada, and Australia, there was a process of taking on board what was good about British systems and then forging an independent path, yeah. you know, around federation, having those sort of knockdown, drag out arguments about what are we doing, what does that look like, and things like the voice are a really good example of the fact that Australian democracy has that commitment to evolution. That we do have these referendums, mm. we do change our minds, we do enhance and enfranchise representation, and, and you know, there's a, a very much a sense here of keeping keeping the good, ditching the bad, improving the better. Yeah. You know, and that's important and that makes us a really healthy democracy because America sort of did it all in one go. They haven't really got that same sort of reform. It's like, well, the founding fathers must have known they were, what they were doing. Yeah. And it's like they didn't have phones. <laughs> there's a, like, and you hear them say things like, They know, didn't let women vote, guys. No, that's not what the founding fathers would have intended. It's like. Yeah, I don't think they in- intended on the combustion engine. Like, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, you can't. Well, the combine harvester. It's, it's not, yeah, exactly. Wait until they find out about the weaving machines. Yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure Thomas Jefferson really, you know, is the man for the, for the, for the times. No, no. But look, Van, we need to, we need to wrap but I, up. But I just, I want to wrap up on Brazil. So Lula's taking control of the situation. Yeah. It is very apparent that the right-wing octopus has its tentacles everywhere. That conversation is now being had with some seriousness because of the power and purchase of conspiracy theories and mobilising mobs to commit acts of violence that undermine democracies, especially when they have such a willing ally in Russia because Russia knows it's in their interest to destabilise democracy so they can turn around to their totally poor, abused, being fed into a wall meat grinder population and go, see, democracy is terrible Nobody even really likes it there, you know, and this is it, this is the problem. So where we're up to is Bolsonaro has condemned the violence, but he hasn't um, accepted his election loss, so he's sort of playing right. two games. He's in hospital. They think he has KFC poisoning, or that might have just been a meme that I read, but he's definitely in hospital, and they're talking about ex- extradition of him to um, to Brazil to face corruption charges. Oh, so while action is being taken, it's – a serious situation. Yeah. Well, look, there's good news. We want to end the show with some good news, and it's a good environmental story from right here at home. We've trotted around the globe, and we've come home for good news. And we've floated to the shores of home, as it were. As it were, because floating on up on the shores of Australia is almost a third less plastic. Yes. Yeah, so the CSIRO monitor the amounts of plastic ocean waste that turn up on Australian beaches. And between 2013, the last time they did this survey, and mm. now there has been a 29% drop in the amount of plastic waste washing up on Australian shores. Like, it's still hideous that there's any plastic waste mm. at all. But they were quite surprised by these findings. So being the good little scientists serving the national interest that they are, they've worked out that it's a combination of factors, would you believe it, mm. an intersectional response that is the reason for this. One, there's more government regulation around packaging, things like, sing, like um, plastic. Single-use plastic. Yeah, single-use plastic bag bans mm. and various other things. Two, there's um, more of an industrial commitment to sustainable packaging, like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. changing because of consumer demand. And three, just individual behaviour is a lot less plasticky. 
that we're moving away from plastic and that's being reflected in the fact that there's less waste. So, you know, bolder action from government, bolder action from industry and increasing personal commitments to say no to plastic and we might get our beaches back. Fantastic. Well, talking about personal commitments and personal commitments that have a collective benefit, of course, the week on Wednesday would not be able to continue to reach new audiences without uh, our the, the individuals who go to our Buy Me A Coffee page, that's buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday, and who make a contribution. You know, we have people who make one-off contributions, people who make a buck a week contribution, people who make 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month, our cadre and extend the reach. And we like to give a shout out to our cadre and, you our, and our extend the reach supporters. You Van, you're going to read them out for you us. You ready? Let's go. Hit it. Shane Horsfall, Bronwyn, Nerissa, Simon, no Twitter for me, Addison officially, and Hampson, Billy, Trey McCabe, Cassandra Tui, Christina Cicluna, at Carrie Nash 20, Giotta, Andrew Pascoe, I don't have a Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Evergreen Bees, Justin Dando, Donna Chapman, Fiona McNeil, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Harley Phillips, Akira Boris, Stephen Aiken, Trish Corey, Christine Collett, Leanne Shingles, Joe Fleming, Matt Bush, no relation, Linda Cartwright, Kathy Birch, Ajay Carney, Greg Miller, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Gabe Kramer, Camille, Brash Daniels, Matthew Hadley, at Naronga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, Tamara James, Lauren Nash and Banjo. Hello, Banjo. Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet at Katagal, Steph at Jane C. Campbell, Karina Bali, Leona Gibbons and someone. Extending the reach supporters are Helen, Andrew, Brian, Damien, Marley, John DeHaan, Tanya George, Ivor Spillett, Eliana and Andrew, Daniel at Crazy Keza at Didums, Tri-Dragon, Cameron Vita W, Michelle Norton, someone, Kristen, Kirsten Black, not on Twitter, Sarah, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Nandita Hannum, Greg Martin, Jodie A, not on Twitter, Melanie Dinning at Galvez, Love Your Work, Richard Graver at Roskenna 888, Kathy Burgess, Rodney Slab, Annie Yurin at Knot, Beck and Lola, hello Lola, Megan Weckett, Sandy Heinen at Angie, Panel, Moira Louise Hawker, Sharon Kelly, Tracy Lucas, Beck Cody, Bunkham Basher, Katie Ward, The Real Never Long Body, at Sandy Baumgart at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Keir Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Graham Oxley, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Stuart Munn, Joe Lapino, Claire, Erica Pizzuti, Frank Nehuis, Maritza at Carradale 68, Adrian Valente at Vic and Bit, Marky Mark, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bate! You are our Extend the Reach and Cadre supporters. We want to give you a huge shout out. Thank you. Congratulations. We, this is our second episode for 2023. We've gone around the globe today. We've looked at some major issues that are impacting workers in the UK, the US, and in Australia. And also, of course, what's happening in Brazil. It's all interconnected. There is obviously a movement, a global movement that every one of us can be part of. It's called the union movement, and it's a force for good in the world because it's a democratic movement and it's fundamentally about improving the working lives and the lives of working people. And it produces people like Lula. Yay! So don't forget, you can also catch Van and I at the Adelaide Fringe Festival in the end of February, start of March. Obviously, on Wednesdays, and we'll be at the Yurt. Which will be fantastic. Uh, and until then, there'll be the weekend wrap on Sunday. Uh, so until then, love you, Vanny. Love you too. Bye. Bye.